Okay, so Zechariah chapter 7, and I've recapped every time I've come up here, Zechariah. Basically, where we are in Zechariah is they are back from the return of their exile, 70 years in Babylon. They've been ordered to rebuild the temple. They were halfway through building the temple or partway through. They got discouragement, and so they stopped. Haggai comes on the scene, encourages them to build the temple. Zechariah comes a month or two later and continues that encouragement. Now, in chapter 7, this is two years after Zechariah's last prophecy. The temple is about halfway completed. And chapter 7 is going to deal with the subject. And again, uh, chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah had a series of eight visions, which we've already covered. Now, chapter 7 comes into a subject that is brought up in many prophetic books uh, at some point, not all of them, but many of them. It's also mentioned by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, and the subject is tradition. And it comes up a lot, but Paul also reminds us in Philippians that if something is repeated frequently, it's because it's needed. So whether it's needed for the baby Christian or for the mature Christian, it's needed because it's a net that we can all get caught up into if we're not paying attention. So verse 1 says, In the fourth year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. Now this is two years later. Verse 2, The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So this is December 4th, 518 BC, give or take a few days. And a delegation has come to Jerusalem, which is about a 10 mile journey from Bethel with the question about fasting. And as I said, the temple's about halfway completed at this point. Now these men knew that during their forced exile in Babylon that they observed these feasts for different reasons, the tragic downfall of Jerusalem. Now they were back in the land. The temple was rebuilt and they're thinking, well, we were doing these as a memorial, but do we really need to do them now? Because the temple's halfway complete. We're going to have our holy site of worship back. Do we still need to do these things? Is it proper since the temple is almost rebuilt? Now the law of Moses commanded that the Jews observe one day of fasting and that's in Leviticus 16 that's verses 29 to 34 and that was on the day of atonement. Now in addition to this one day the exiles had actually added four more fasts to remember key key dates in their tragic downfall uh when they were taken captivity. Now those four fasts were one on April 17th where they mourned the capture of Jerusalem. And this is found in Jeremiah 52. They had a fast on May 9th, which was for a memorial of the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction of Solomon's temple. We see this in 2 Kings 25. They had another fast on July 3rd to memorialize the assassination of Gedaliah, who was the governor or king of Jerusalem at the time, and the massacre of 80 men. This is also found in Jeremiah. Uh, chapter 4. And the fourth one was celebrated on October 10th. And this was the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem. This is found in 2 Kings 25.1. Now these additional fasts, they weren't required or commanded by God, but they were instituted by man, but because they had been practiced for 70 years. And, you know, it's very easy to get into a rut of tradition. And so they thought, well, should we really stop them? I mean, they've kind of got a a mind of their own now. I mean, everybody's used to doing them. We've done it for so many years. I mean, maybe we should just keep doing it. Now, there are times we do things for so long, it, it's almost painful to break with tradition. Um, in growing up, even though my dad was in the Navy, we moved around a lot. We always came back to my grandmother's house and we were always doing family functions there. Now, we don't do that a lot anymore. Um, and it, it sort of, uh, it was painful at first because we had done it for so long, it almost seemed like something was off. Now, there was nothing wrong with it. It was just things that had happened and families moved out of state or different things happened. So it was painful, but it wasn't wrong that we broke the tradition. 
But the important thing with the tradition, a religious tradition especially, is we need to be questioning the tradition, not in a spirit of rebellion, like I don't want to do this because of so-and-so does this and I don't want to do it because of this. Um, but we should question it in a purpose of why. What, why am I doing this? What's the reason I'm doing this? What's the heart of the matter t- in my decision for celebrating this holiday or this tradition or whatever? Now, where I work, my comp- I work in retail. My company always asks, uh, and I manage one side of my warehouse, okay, Eric, why did you put this here? Um, why did you put it on this end cap? Why is it on the front? Why is it on the back? Why is it on this corner? You know, what's the purpose for doing it? Is it flagging this out correctly? Is it doing this? Does it fit with the item next to it? And so there's always a question of, is this the right thing? And the one thing they always say is, it's always been there, or we've always placed it in that aisle, is not a good reason to do it. They always want us to be questioning, why are we doing this? What's the proper thing? And they do this because in the past year, 17 major retailers have either shut down completely or shut down more than half of their stores. So my business, my company is going, we need to step back and look. You know, are we doing something wrong? Are we going to do something they're doing? What is our motivation behind what we're doing? So as Christians, we need to not be looking at our spiritual walk. Well, I've always done it that way. Well, I've al- we've always done this as a church. And that's not really a good excuse. Now, if we look at history, how many spirit-filled movements came as a result of someone not conforming to the tradition of the time? If you look at Martin Luther and the Reformation, he didn't conform to the Catholic Church. Now, he tried to reform it from the inside out, but he, he had, I can't even name them all now, it was Sola Scriptura, uh, Sola Fide, Does anybody remember the other two? I don't remember, but it was by faith alone. uh, Christ, yeah, I don't remember what they were, but it was, (laughs) I should. Um, But he had these four things, and they're all based on the word, and that reformation came out of those things. You can also look at the missionary movement, and there's always been missionaries, but there was a large movement that happened between the 17th and 19th centuries where just thousands of missionaries went out around the world. And they all had... Uh, verses where God spoke to them, you know, like Hudson Taylor and just um, and thousands of people went out to do mission work. And you can look at the Calvary movement that happened, uh, the Jesus movement during the 60s. And all these movements were born out of things that happened because of the Spirit and not conforming to the traditions of the time. Now, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Jaywalking. It was when Jay Lynn was still doing the... Tonight Show? Is that the one he was on? But that was, and I didn't watch it that often, but when I did, I usually watched it. And he would go around and quiz people and say, hey, you know, what do we celebrate July 4th for? What do we do this for? And I'd say 90%, maybe 75 to 90% of the people couldn't answer why they were celebrating something. And I was, I watched some last night because I was, I was getting information for the study. And, uh, and plus I spent too long watching them, but July 4th just happened about a month and a half ago, or yeah, about a month and a month ago. And so this one guy, and I didn't just watch Jay Leno, I watched another guy too. They asked, why do we celebrate July 4th? And one person said, our independence from the South. Another person said, well, we celebrate it for fireworks. He asked the question, uh, who was the Declaration of Independence signed by? And obviously there was a lot more than a few people. But uh, the only person that anybody could name was Abraham Lincoln, and he didn't sign it. They asked what year the Declaration of Independence was signed. Now, I don't know if I'm being overly critical. I was raised in a house where history was a very big deal. Um, My grandfather talked about it. My dad, everybody talked about it. So if you didn't know these things... My family had an issue with it. So I watched this, and I think it's funny. So uh, when they asked what year the Declaration of Independence was signed, some people said 1964. Some people said 1984. One person said 1875. And a lot of people just said, I don't know, and walked away. 
Um, when asked, what country do we receive our independence from? Somebody said California. <laughs> a lot of people walked away and said, I don't know. In fact, the only people they asked who knew what country we got our independence from was the people visiting from other countries. Somebody from Italy knew, somebody from Sweden knew, and another person in Europe. They all knew that we got our independence from Great Britain. Nobody that he questioned who was from America actually knew the answer. So, and I, there was a bunch of other people couldn't name how many stars were on the flag. Some people said 30, some people said 50-something. Anyway, the point is, when, you, when we're doing a tradition, we should know why we're doing it. It shouldn't just be out of a, well, of course we're going to celebrate July 4th. I mean, there's fireworks. It's time to get together with your family. And by the way, that was one of the number one answers as well. It's, we get together because it's family time. Well, yeah, we get together with our family, but there's a reason we can do that. So know why we're doing something. Now, verses 4 through 7. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? So I want you to notice in verse 5 it says, Was it really for me? Verse 6, Were you not just feasting for yourselves? So God's asking them, where's their heart in the matter? And the first thing to notice is, okay, it's okay to have traditions, but it's not about the tradition. The tradition reminds us of our relationship with God to begin with. Our relationship, and this is what one commentator said, our relationship with the Lord isn't so much a matter of traditions and rules as it is faith, love, and a desire to please him. So we can have tradition, but God doesn't want us to focus on it, but on cultivating our relationship with him. And so this is what Zechariah is telling them. He says, look, what you're doing is religious stuff. It's not whether or not you should or shouldn't be doing it, or whether or not you should or shouldn't fast, or whatever the case may be, but where is your heart in it? You've turned these events into memorials, but you weren't really doing it for me. You were eating or not eating for yourselves. He's saying, were you fasting to show mourning, or were you fasting because everybody else was fasting? Now, the church has no mandated time to fast. There's no such tradition that we're commanded to observe. Now we do fast and we can fast and there's a time to do that. Um, and again, like I said, not that we shouldn't fast and you don't fast because you get God in a headlock and you're trying to get something from him. You don't fast because you're trying to barter with God. You know, if I fast this long, maybe you're going to do this for me. You're not more spiritual. If you fast, you should do it. But when you fast, you set your life aside and you say, here I am, Lord, do what you will with me. Show me what you want me to do. Show me how you want me to act. Show me what you want me to change. That's why we should be fasting. Now, there are times tradition is added simply to appear pious or religious. And there are people who add Christianity to their life for this reason. Uh, but Christianity is not something that you add to your life. It is your life. The second thing here is it's not wrong to have tradition, but it is wrong to have tradition outweigh your obedience to him in the first place. Now, even in the time of Samuel, which is many hundred years before this, God let Israel know through Saul that he wasn't interested in just sacrifice. He wanted the obedience first. And sacrifices served their purpose back then. But King Saul used God's commandment to sacrifice as an excuse for his own disobedience. See, Saul was commanded by God to go kill the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a people who came and opposed Israel on their way to the promised land and tried to wipe Israel out. And God said, you know what, Amalekites, Amalek, you're not going to be forgiven of that. And Amalek means warlike. They were a constant warlike people. And God said, you know what, because of what they did, Saul, I want you to go wipe them out. Basically, 
where he sent them to attack was a military outpost. So he went to attack them. And instead of killing everybody like he was supposed to, he let the king live. He let all the sheep live and every, all, the, all the spoils of war he kept. And he wasn't supposed to do that. In fact, when Samuel came to confront Saul, Saul said, I have fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, really? What's the bleeding I hear in my ears of sheep? And he said, oh, well, I couldn't restrain the people and we wanted to sacrifice to the Lord. And he said, well, isn't obedience better than sacrifice? He said, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking just for sacrifice. I'm looking for your heart. I want the obedience. I want your obedience. And in verse 6 and 7, he's essentially saying the same thing. He said, I've told your ancestors these same things. I would have rather you had listened to me through the prophets so that the 70 years would never have happened in the first place. Because during this entire time, and we've gone through some of these minor prophet books already, they were like, oh, we're doing the religious things. They were still going to the temple. They were still sacrificing. They were still doing everything. But that was the outward show, and their heart was serving the balls that were already in their house, or the Ashtoreths, all the other false gods. Now, there are maybe 2 billion people in the world who call themselves Christians today, at least according to the website that I looked at. And you have to ask how many attend church out of ritual and routine and not personally knowing the Lord. And again, this is where it's not the ritual. Coming here doesn't make you more righteous, but placing your faith in him does. He just wants us to hear his word and yield to it. Now, the third thing is it's not about the tradition, but it's about walking in the spirit. Like I said, Zechariah wasn't condemning any traditions. He was emphasizing the fact that a true spiritual life can't be turned on and off at our convenience so that we can't just serve God one minute and avoid him the next. The Lord, this one commentator said, the Lord has to be the center of our lives and the reason for our actions. So that's what the traditions are, the reasons for our actions. And it even says in Romans fourteen twenty three, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So everything we do must come from our faith. Now, there are things done in tradition that are helpful to our faith. Now, I read a book many years ago. If it was called, uh, it's called Family Driven Faith. It was a, by a man named Vodi Bakum. And he was basically showing um, how he applied his faith and how he used it to raise his family. And he said, you know, I read my family, through my family, uh, the shorter catechisms. And I was like, catechism? I was like, he's, and he's Baptist. I'm like, he's not even Catholic. And in my head, that was a Catholic thing. I'm not Catholic. I don't have a problem with people using catechism, but I had no idea what it was to begin with. But he used the word. I'm like, well, I don't even like that term. Um, and I don't mind it now, now that I know what it is. Um, but I was turned off by the word. And a catechism is a series of question questions and answers designed to help you know and understand what the Bible teaches. Now, in New England, in the late 1700s, there's something called the New England Primer. And I think Pastor Bill has showed you one of these before. I have this by my bed, actually. And it's got, it's basically a little school book. This is what the kids used. And in it is the shorter catechism of the Assembly of Westminster. Now, this is what the first question is. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy, enjoy him? The answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scripture of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy him. Now, this is the shorter catechism, and I think it's like a hundred something questions. There's an extended one. Now, this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It can teach you what the Bible teaches you about God, what we should know, what we should memorize. But it can also be something that, you know, I know that, uh, what is it called? Confirmed. When people are confirmed, they have to memorize catechisms sometimes and other things like that. Now, again, it's not bad to memorize those things, and those things can help increase your faith, especially when you're reading it in conjunction with the Bible, because uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So this is one of those things that's beneficial. Now, another thing that becomes tradition is baptism. And 
anybody can go out there and get dunked. But again, what's your reason behind it? Now, uh, when I first got saved, I was say I was raised in the church, but I didn't get saved. I didn't place my faith in Christ till I was 16. But I didn't get baptized till I believe I was 20 or 21. And I didn't get baptized because there was the question going around, well, are you saved if you place your faith in Christ but don't get baptized? And you are, but God commands you to be baptized. But I hadn't noticed that in my Bible reading, that it was a command. And so I thought, well, I'm just not going to get baptized to show people that you can be saved and not baptized. And that was probably out of rebellion, too, because I don't like to be told what to do. But my friend pointed out through Scripture that it was a command, and not to do so was disobedience. And I was like, ah, well, now I have to, because if God's going to command it, that's one thing. But if man's making a tradition, that's what I was really fighting against. So I was like, well, if God says to do it, I guess I'm going to have to do it. So I got baptized. Um, another thing is communion. You know, we, we take it and you know, what I like about communion here is pastor Bill explains it. Sometimes it's a long explanation. Sometimes it's a short one, but he explains why we're doing it. It's not just reciting first Corinthians 12 or where it's found in the gospels. He says, this is why we're taking communion. This is why we do it. So those are three things that are traditions in the church, but those are traditions that help us with our growth and our faith. Now, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah, in verse 9, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. And this is what he wants. He wants truth from our lives. He doesn't want a phony outward living. He wants us to live truthfully. He said, I don't want you to starve yourself. I want you to actually behave like the believers you're claiming to be. I want you to show truth. I want you to have mercy on each other. I want you to have compassion for one another. And this was in stark contrast to what they were doing before they were taken away. They were taking advantage of one another. And the, the prophets have many, many verses condemning what the leaders were doing and what the people were doing to each other. Now, if you've ever seen or read anything about the mafia, you've seen that a lot of them were altar boys or go to confession, and, but they keep up Catholic tradition. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the guy in World War II because um, the government worked in conjunction with the mafia to guard the New York Harbor from the Nazis, but I can't remember. Lucky Luciano, I think it was. He was a good Catholic, and he was an altar boy. He was also a mass murderer, but he was a good American. So we have all those things in conjunction. But he was not saved. But he did all those things. He did all those traditions. And when I look at things like that, I go, okay, well, God wants us to have true justice, mercy, compassion. And yet these people would go and do a hit on somebody a hit on somebody, and then they'd go to confession and confess it, and then they're all good before God. And that's kind of the picture I see here with some of the things they're doing. Maybe they weren't doing the things to that extent, like the mafia, but that's kind of what was happening. But again, God doesn't care about the mindless tradition. He cares about how you're acting towards him and towards others. You can also compare this to Micah 6.8, where he says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And there's a bunch of little snippets like that where God's saying, I don't want tradition, but this is what I'm looking for. And he gives three things, what he wants them to do. He wants them to act out their faith. Verse 10 through 12. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. He said their hearts were as hard as flint. There are several places in scripture where he says he wants them to write things on their heart. 
Uh, in Proverbs 3, 3, it says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Proverbs 7, 2 through 3 says, keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, and this is in the midst of Judah getting ready to be taken away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah is looking forward to a time when the people are not hard-hearted. He says, this is the covenant, and this is a new covenant, that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, this is, they're hard-hearted at this point, like flint, something you can't etch into. And God said, look, I just want to write, I want your heart to be soft. I want my law in there. And Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three is also quoted in Hebrews 8, 10. But he wanted, he just wanted a soft heart. He wanted the relationship. Now, the problem, again, wasn't that they didn't fast. The problem is they didn't listen in the first place. That's why they went into captivity. And it was this hardness of flint. Now, this did change to a certain extent when they returned. But even right now, uh, the Jewish people are blinded as a, as, a, as a nation to who their Messiah was. And their heart is a little hard, and they're, they're blinded by a veil over their eyes. But that will change. Verse 13 and 14. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations, where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. And God brought this judgment because of their stiff-necked stubbornness. And the law that he gave, the law was about man's response to God. This is what God wanted them to do. God knew they couldn't fulfill it. And that's why the new covenant was born, the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about. And that's about God's response to man. Now, when we move into chapter 8, we go from tradition in chapter 7, why it's not useful, why it is useful. But chapter 8 is a chapter of promises. And again, the whole background is they're building the temple. They've been getting trouble from every side. They were discouraged. They were downtrodden. He's been giving them visions. This is what's going to happen in the future. This is why you should strengthen your hands. But chapter 7 is a break that says, look, this is going to happen, but don't get caught in tradition. And chapter 8 says, now look what the promises I have for you in the future. One commentator said, God's people don't live on explanations. They live on promises. And we hope on the promises of God. Uh, there's a, a verse, I can't remember the exact location. I think it's Second Timothy. Actually, I think it's Second Timothy 2, 11 to 13. But it says, God is faithful even when we are not. That's a paraphrase. So God's going to be faithful on his promises. Even if we're not faithful following God every day like we should, God's going to prove his faithfulness and keep his promises. Now, in this chapter, the phrase, there is a phrase nine times that says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. It says this same phrase seven other times in this book, but nine out of the 16 times it's used in this chapter. This specific phrase is only used 43 times in the entire Bible. There are other phrases like, thus says the Lord, and things like that. Um, but in this specific context, this specific phrase is only used 43 times, and a third of those times, it's used in Zechariah. Uh, Haggai uses the phrase five times, and he's in this same time frame as Zechariah, and Jeremiah uses it 18 times in his 50-chapter book, and then there's, I think, two or three other times. But the phrase is significant because, as we discussed in chapter one, when we look at the Lord Almighty, it's the sovereignty of God and 
his control over all situations and the events of history that we're relying on. It's his control, even if everything around us is falling apart. And so God has been saying, look, I'm in control no matter what's going on. And then he says, look, I'm in control. Let me show you what's going to happen. And he listed lists uh, nine times in this chapter. Verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is the reason God has done everything that he's done to Israel over the years. He is jealous for them. Now, there is a group in our world today. They're called the New Atheists. Um, And one of them, his name is uh, Richard Dawkins. And he says, that when God is jealous, he is being petty. God, he says, God goes into, and I'm quoting him, a monumental rage whenever his people flirted with a rival God. And Bill Maher, he's not one of the, he's just loudmouth. But (laughs) he's just Bill Maher. He says, to have jealousy about having other gods before you is not moral. Uh, Altogether, they have essentially said, it is God who is a petty and insecure deity because he is impatient, jealous, and easily provoked. So the argument is... Why are you following a jealous God who's just petty, self-serving, self-centered? That's the God you serve in the Old Testament. That is an argument of ignorance if they'd ever read the New Old Testament. And if they'd paid basic uh, attention to definitions. There is a bad jealousy, and there is a good jealousy. Because it can be a good or a bad thing. Bad jealousy is rooted in self-centeredness. It's bad to protect petty things. It's also listed in the acts of the flesh in Galatians 5, where it says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Non-Christians will come in and look at the word and go, oh, look, it's used here in a bad sense, and God's jealous, so God is bad. Your Bible contradicts itself. Not true, because good jealousy comes from a concern for another person's well-being. It is good to fiercely guard what is precious. Second Corinthians 11.2 is Paul quoting. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul was concerned for the spiritual well-being of the Corinthians. He wasn't in it for personal concern. He wasn't in it for pride, but he was concerned for their walk. He was jealous for them. He spent a year and a half in Corinth when he first got there. Paul said, you're protected here. I've got many people here. I want you to minister here. And Paul was, and he's committed to all his churches. That's why he wrote letters to them and traveled to visit them. But he was jealous for them. He wanted them to have growth in Christ. So to understand the jealousy of God, why is God jealous? Why is his jealousy a good thing? In God's case, it's when we're rummaging around in the garbage piles of life and avoiding him as the ultimate source of our satisfaction. There's a comic strip where there's a dog drinking out of the toilet, and it's captioned with, It doesn't get any better than this. Now, that dog chose nasty water instead of the fresh, clean water the master had put in his bowl. That's kind of what happens when, instead of going for the good things that God has given us, we go for the things of the world that are petty and passing and really not compared to what what God God has for us. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah 
jealousy in marriage. Now, this is where I don't understand the argument. I know well, another place I don't understand the arguments of these new atheists. They say jealousy is bad, but should a wife or a husband be upset when a spouse flirts or ogles the opposite sex? And the answer is, of course. That's not a bad jealousy. You should be upset. If your spouse is not upset, were you looking at someone else? That's a problem. That's an issue. A marriage without the potential for jealousy when an intruder threatens isn't much of a marriage. Uh, the response of the spouse should be outrage, pain, anguish, because that's a violation. Now, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, also believes that God should just be an abstract entity if he's real or just an impersonal principle. This is someone making excuses why he, why he doesn't believe God should exist. But God connects himself to us in such a way that he opens himself up to us. Now, God views our relationship with him in such a way as marriage. In Ezekiel 6, 9, it says, and this is God to Israel here, though. Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me. How I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts. This is God talking. I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. And then he says in Isaiah 65, this is again, God mourning for the stubbornness of his people. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. And just as physical adultery is not a petty matter, neither is spiritual adultery. God even had Hosea the prophet marry a prostitute so that he could understand, he and Israel could understand what it felt like. God said, you want to know what I feel like? This is what I feel like. You know, Hosea, how heartbroken you are that your wife, after you had kids together, went off with another man. That's, that's how I feel every day with Israel when they're not turning back to me. God also gives a graphic perspective on Israel's unfaithfulness in Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. In chapter 16 of Ezekiel, he describes a time for love, which is an intimacy in marriage on the honeymoon. It's God's way of describing his marriage to the people when he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He says, and he, God literally says this, you became mine. God held them close to his heart. You became mine. I made a covenant with you. When Israel was making this covenant with God, Israel herself said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is Israel saying, yes, I do. God, we're together. This is our, this is our marriage. And then later on in Ezekiel 16, he says this, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. That's verse 16 of Ezekiel 16. 16.25 says this. At every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increased promiscuity to anyone who passed by. That is what Israel was doing. That's why God is hurt. He said, look, you're just going everywhere. He said, Israel, you're easy, for lack of a better term. And, you know, God's heart was hurt. And that's a light way of putting it. Israel's adultery was like a husband finding his wife in bed with another man on their honeymoon. The reason God is jealous is because he binds himself to his people in covenant, just like a marriage ceremony. So worshiping idols and other gods is a rejection of who he is, just as a adultery is a rejection of uh, someone's spouse. And when the word jealous describes God in scripture, it's always in the context of idolatry and false worship, never any other time. That's, that's how he feels. So when we choose this worldly pursuits over our relationship with God, we actually engage in spiritual adultery. And it, it talks about that in James 4, verse 4. And this provokes God to a righteous jealousy. 
And again, you can see throughout the Old Testament that God is not just passionately concerned for his people, uh, but he's hurt by it. And God knows everything. He knew it was going to happen, but it still breaks his heart. And again, that's an, a human way to look at it, but that's really how God feels. He's, and God says it that way. And this is also where his caring anger comes from. He's jealous for us. Les posted something on Facebook. I think it was a couple days ago. It was about cobalt mines in the Congo. And I read the article, and I was angry. Cobalt is what they use for electric cars with batteries. They're not mining it with proper safeguards in place. They're using children between, I think the youngest age I saw was four, all the way up to adults, to go down into the mines and carry piles of rocks up with the cobalt in it. And all this dust that it makes um, inhabits their lungs, and most of those kids die at 11 and 12. And that's what they're using to mine this for, you know, the free world. Again, I'm not condemning anybody for buying an electric car, but that's what's happening. And they're doing it in the guise of, well, it's, you know, it's going to help the environment. It's going to do all these good things. Yeah, we're helping the environment maybe at the cost of children and other people. But, you know, I, I hate when people take advantage of children um, like nothing else. That's why I have abortion. I, all those things, you know, nothing gets me more irate than that. And uh, after I read the article, I didn't know what to do after that. I just put angry face. You know, I, I, I was irritated, but, you know, I didn't know what to do at that point other than, you know, uh, be irritated. But we need to be touched by the suffering that's going on in the world. We can't be apathetic the suffering, the sadness, the oppression, all these things that are going on, they should affect us. It shouldn't just be, well, I can't do nothing about that. I mean, there's got to be something we can do. We can't always do major things, but big changes start with little actions. But you know what? Anger is often the first indication that we do care to begin with. Um, the tragedy that happens is that we're not angered or shocked enough at the things that go on around us. A lot of times we become apathetic because we're so used to seeing it. Now, I don't use language, foul language personally. I mean, besides the fact God says not to. But I hear it every day at work. And I'm sure if you work in the world, so do you. Um, and there are many colorful metaphors that go on at work. And I can become, I, I may still use it but I can become insensitive to hearing it, and that's not what I want. And so I try not to watch movies that are going to use a lot of that, uh, if at all, because I don't want to be affected by it any more than I have to. Uh, at work, you know, I'm in the world. God says we're in the world. We're not to go out of the world, because how are we supposed to affect the world if we leave it? So i got to pray not to become insensitive, but to still be the witness that I need to be. At the same time, I don't want to bombard myself on purpose with things that are pointless and not going to increase my faith. Now it says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give a foothold to the devil. So you can be angry. This is righteous anger and not sin. Uh, one person said, one author wrote, that the never-angered person is morally deficient, and the slow-to-anger person is the virtuous one. And ironically enough, it is God who is described as slow to anger in Exodus 34. God is slow to anger, but he sees it, and he wants to fix those things that are wrong. Uh, Jesus himself cleaned the money changers out of the temple at least twice that we're aware of. Um, I don't think he did it every time he went, but his righteous anger was burning when he went there because they were turning God's house into a place for commercial gain. It also says in Mark 3, 5, uh, where, God, where Jesus had righteous anger, 
It says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. He was angry because of their faith or their lack of faith and their stubbornness. And he wasn't angry because it was inconveniencing him. He was angry because Jesus was coming to his people, the people that he was prophesied to come through, and they weren't listening. The people that needed the Messiah weren't listening for the Messiah or even looking into the scriptures that talked about him. And he was angry. And God's jealousy and anger will always spring from concern and not for pride or immaturity. Now, as a parent, I don't know if anybody else has, but I have been angry with my children's disobedience and not because it inconvenienced me, although that has occasioned, but a lot of times I get angry with my children for what the disobedience could mean in their future. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, We have three rules in our house when it comes to obedience. You are obedient without delay, you are obedient without excuse, and you are obedient without challenge. Now, technically, that means you listen the first time, and there's a reason for that. Now, my wife and I are no means perfect. Don't think that we apply this in a great, fantastic way. We don't, but we strive for that goal. I've told my children the reason for these rules is, and I've told them very plainly, I don't want you dead. Now, I say that, and it sounds funny, but when I was four years old, uh, my sister and I, who was, I believe she was three at the time, we lived in Mississippi. My mom was in the yard weeding. She turned her back to us for a second, and I convinced my sister to run across the street with me. We did not look. We ran back across when we saw a car coming. Um, My sister did not miss the car. The car hit her. So I made it to the sidewalk, and I turn around, and I see my sister rolling down the street. And I heard my mom scream at the same time. So that happened 36 years ago, and I remember it just as clearly today as then. So when I tell my kids, when I tell you to stop the first time, you stop the first time because I have experience in this. I know exactly what could happen if you don't listen the first time. And we we watch movies with them, and the child is always the hero because they were disobedient to the adult. I'm like... That's stupid. That's not real. Um, Adults aren't always right, but they're not always that stupid either. Um, And there's a lot of movies that are pot like. And I'm not saying we haven't watched these movies. Um, But when I watch movies with my children, it's like, oh, pause. Let me explain why this is dumb or why this is wrong. And I do this a lot. And a lot of times they go like this. Okay, Dad, what are you going to say? And... You can ask them which movies, but I tell them for a reason. Everything I do is not because I'm trying to be an unfun dad. I'm doing it because I'm trying to be a dad that cares what's going to happen to you. I don't want to see you rolling down the street like I saw your auntie roll down the street. Okay, That would hurt me tremendously. And so I'm very anxious. Um, When we go places, I feel like I'm security. So I let my wife have fun with the kids, and I'm usually in the back, and I'm like, okay, where's all the threats coming from? And so that's, that's usually what happens when we go out. I'm, but that's our protective jealousy, and that's the jealousy that God has for us. He looks around, and he goes, that's a threat to you. That's a threat to you. I want to protect you from that. That's what God is looking at. So when people say, uh, your God's a petty, jealous God, no. He's jealous for my protection. He's jealous because he cares for me, because he doesn't want anything bad to happen. There are those who claim that God's jealousy is petty because they liken God to a husband who won't let his wife even talk to another man. But a more appropriate analogy is this as well. It is the husband who is concerned that his wife is being emotionally drawn towards another man. The husband wants to protect the preciousness of his marriage, uh, which is always going to be in the best, or which should always be in the best interests of his wife and their marriage. 
So God's jealousy is not simply to protect us from relationship. It's to protect us from self-harm. C.S. Lewis quoted, or C.S. Lewis said it this way concerning our uh, God being jealous and his protection. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So a lot of times we think, ah, this is fine. You know, this mud is fun. And uh, I've never had a mud bath. I know that's a thing, but I'm pretty sure a cruise is way better than that. And that's what God wants us to see. He's, he's not being the unfun dad. He's not being the overprotective. Well, he's not being the unfun husband either. He's not doing it for selfish reasons. It's always because he's trying to protect us. He sees the wide wayward path that leads to, leads to death being trodden with the creation that he loves. He sees everybody going off. He doesn't want that. He sees us wallowing in the mud like pigs with the filthiness of sin all around us, and he wants to pull us out of it and place us in a water park, for lack of a better term. He sees us being drawn toward a busy street, and he wants to save us and pull us back. He is jealous, but he is always jealous for our good. I think we're only going to get to verse 2 in chapter 8. So let's go ahead and bow our heads. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that, you know, we, you did place traditions in our path. Not to harm us or to blind us to you, but to, draw, to increase our relationship with you, to remind us of things. And Lord, you are jealous for our protection. You're jealous because you care for us. You only want the best. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. Lord, help us never to look down on the providence, on the provision that you've given us, but always be grateful and, thank, and thankful. Lord, as we go out today, help us to be the witnesses that we need to be. Help others to look at us and go, I want what they want because they have a joy that I need. Help us to have those things. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.